truth do to you? I just want to be happy. But if I keep on doing the things that keep on bringing me pain, there's no one else I can blame if I'm not happy. Wasted time, but now I can see the biggest enemy is me. So I'm not happy. Cry yourself to sleep. Shout and raise your hands. It won't change a thing, child, until you understand.
Praise God, praise God for a good Friday. Amen, amen. God has been good to us to see another good Friday. Amen. And we thank him that he allows to see Sunday morning. It's not just a normal Sunday morning. That's a Sunday morning where he got up. And he didn't get up just weekly. He got up with all power in his hand. And today we celebrate what has been done for you and I in a powerful, powerful way. So today I know you're full of the Spirit. You come to praise and to worship. You didn't come to sit and just hold your hands and fold your hands because God been too good to you to sit there and hold your hand. So somebody ought to wave their hand. And, and, and if you can't wave your hand, just smile and say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, because we're here to celebrate. And it's a special day because we have seven preachers that's going to bring us the word today. Amen. Amen. So we're going to pray for each one of them, and we're going to pray that God blesses them in a mighty, mighty way. All right? Amen. Let us pray, and then we will have Elder Taylor and Sister Petrina to lead us in song. Amen? All right. God, we thank you for an opportunity to come into the house of prayer and to praise your holy name. So, Lord, we pray that what we do today glorifies you, edifies your people, and then most of all reminds us afresh that although it's Good Friday, Sunday is coming. Thank you for Resurrection Sunday. Thank you that Jesus got up with all power in his hand. And so we praise him and we lift you up and we give you all of the glory and all of the honor because you alone are worthy. And we bless your name. Now bless our time right now. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen, amen, and amen. Hallelujah. We invite everybody to stand to your feet this morning. As we sing congregational hymns, down at the cross where my Savior died, down where from cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood applied, glory to his name.
precious name and we're singing glory to his name fair to my heart fair to my heart was the blood of black glory to his name one more time we're singing glory to his name precious name Just worship the Lord for a minute, everybody. If you would, just lift your hands. And let's just worship the Lord. Give him glory and let's give him honor. Hallelujah. Glory to your name, Jesus. 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 At the mention of your name, every knee will bow and tongue proclaim Jesus Jesus you are Savior you are Lord and you are God let's worship together everybody this morning everybody sing Jesus Jesus of your name every knee will bow and tongue proclaim Jesus Jesus you are Savior you are Lord and you are God The mention of your name. Every knee will bow and tongue proclaim. Jesus. Oh, what a matchless name. You are Savior. Now say this one. Say, You're the only living God. Everybody say. Yes, you are. You're the only living God. Oh, you're the only living God, you say. You're the only living God. Oh, you're the 
What a wonderful Savior you are. Thank you for the price you paid for our sins, God. Thank you for dying on the cross, shedding your precious blood so that we may have life, God. And we don't take that for granted, God. Thank you for everything that you've done for us and everything that you are in our lives. We give you glory and praise. Be magnified and glorified in this place today is our prayer in the name of Jesus. Come on, clap your hands and give, give the Lord praise. All right, it's fellowship time. Y'all know how we roll at Good Hope. Come on, get out of your road, get out of your aisle. Greet as many people as you can. Welcome them to worship. Good afternoon, everybody. Happy Good Friday to all as we come to celebrate and remember what God has done for us. And we hear from seven preachers who will be sharing 
the seven last sayings of Christ on today. Come on, let's give God a hand of praise. So I've got to tell you, man, we, we, we did some things a little different this year. Uh, one, we moved our children's program from Sunday at noon, and we moved it to Wednesday night. And man, what a tremendous time we had Wednesday night celebrating our children. Uh, even with it being a school night, man, we had all of the grandmoms and granddads and aunties and uncles and everybody here. And our children did an absolutely phenomenal job on, on Wednesday night. And uh, we're grateful to God for that. This year we made a shift. Typically I would preach at 12 noon and then we would do the seven last sayings on Friday evening. And we decided that we would just do one service on Friday and move the seven last sayings up to the noon hour. Now for those of you who may be wondering um, actually, uh, the biblical record declares that the seven utterances of Christ uh, were made from the cross beginning at noon. And so tradition has it that it was between noon and 3 p.m. that these sayings were uttered, uh, reflecting not just Christ's commitment to the plan of God, but also Christ's care for people and loving us when we were at our worst to help us be our best. And so we come today to hear these seven sayings and to reflect upon them, to think about what the Lord did for us and also to continue to be reminded of what God wants from us. Now we know today is Good Friday in part because of Resurrection Sunday. It wasn't Good Friday until after Sunday came. But on that Friday, it was a dark day. It was a dark day because on Thursday, what we call Maundy Thursday, that day when the commandment was given, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the Holy Communion, the Eucharist. But What's interesting is the disciples at that moment did not understand it in its full theological context. And when Jesus was taken after being betrayed by Judas, it caught all of them off guard. There, we, there was this sense they were still holding out hope that he would establish his kingdom on earth. They still didn't understand that he didn't come to be the ruling monarch Messiah, but he came to be the suffering servant Messiah. They still didn't fully grasp. They, they didn't see Calvary yet and what would come. So imagine just for a moment the one you have been following for three years, the one who has loved you and poured into your life, the one who is the hope of the world who has shared with you miracles after miracles and, and invested in you, imagine him being betrayed and him sentenced to death. Um, imagine how you would have felt if you heard these words thinking that the end was near. 
See, we, we listen today from a celebratory perspective because we know how the story ends. But on Friday, the story was still being written. They didn't know about Resurrection Sunday. They, they didn't know about being raised with all power. And they heard what he said, but they hadn't seen it. And it's in that context that these seven utterances are made. Our first two ministers who will share is Minister Chris Johnson, who will be saying the first saying from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. And our second word will come from Minister Charles Cohen, Jr., who will be sharing, I tell you the truth, today you shall be with me in paradise. Each minister has 10 minutes, and we pray that God will bless them and use them in a powerful way. Come on, let's give God a hand of praise as Minister Johnson comes. Good afternoon, Good Hope. As we begin to look at the seven final last sayings of Christ, we start in the Gospel of Luke, the 23rd chapter, the 31st, 34th verse. Jesus utters this first last saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided his garments and began to cast lots for them. Jesus meets the rejection and the hatred of the Roman centurions and Pontius Pilate and the religious and spiritual leaders of his day with love. The Bible says that he had been placed and sent through an arduous 12 hours. You know, when you suffer from ignorance, you have to realize that there are different kinds of ignorance. Jesus suffered from a circumstantial ignorance in relation to the soldiers. They thought they knew what they were doing, but they didn't know who they were doing it to. But then again, he suffered from a judicial ignorance. The man who should have freed him didn't. The folk that should have known he was the Messiah didn't recognize him as God. And they sent him through a mock trial on trumped-up charges and convicted him anyway. And there we have a lesson from Calvary. We have a lesson from the cross of Jesus giving forgiveness to folk who really don't deserve it. You know, if we're really honest about it, God is giving us an example from the cross. You know, the hardest conversation you can have with anybody is somebody who thinks they know it all. I mean, have you ever tried to have a conversation with an ignorant Negro? You can't tell him anything. Jesus is having a conversation from the cross with folks who are ignorant. By definition, ignorance is a lack of knowledge and information. Your only way you deal with ignorance is in love. Jesus takes 
a personal slight and takes it prayerfully. You know, for all of us as Christians, God has set an example from us from the place of the cross. And the example that he gives us is that we should never take it personally. We should always take it prayerfully. We celebrate him this Good Friday, not only for the sacrifice he made through his death, but also the example he set with his life. There from Calvary's cross, God utters words that would have eternal value and meaning for all time to remember. He looks up to heaven and he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Have you ever had to try to forgive somebody knowing they don't know what they do? You know, in boxing, they say that the hardest punch you can get hit with is the one you don't see. You know, so many times in life we get hit with the proverbial punches from folks that we don't see. We thought they were our friends. We thought they loved us. We thought they knew how to treat us. We thought that they respected and valued us. We thought that they put a premium on our relationship and our, our, our time with them, but nevertheless, they were operating in ignorance. But that same ignorance that they operate in, guess what? You operate in that ignorance too. And so there's a reciprocal forgiveness that Jesus shows us as Christians that we must model in our everyday life. Aren't you happy that you have a God that thought enough of you that even as he was going through his own suffering and his own trial and tribulation and his own crucifixion, he lifted his head to the heavens and said, Father, forgive them not, for they know not what they do. The character of Christ. When we're cut personally, there's always in our flesh that feeling to want to respond or retaliate. And God shows that the response is never retaliation. But it's always an intercession in prayer. Some of the same men that Jesus asked for and talked to God about, we find in Acts 6 that they came to Christ. See, when you are used by God to be a conduit of forgiveness, you never know who's ushered into salvation. The same forgiveness that he gives you when you insult him or when you give him personal injury. The same forgiveness he gives you, guess what? He expects you to give it to somebody else. See, Good Friday isn't just about the crucifixion. It's also about the character of Jesus. In the toughest moment, in the most arduous moment, in the most dire moment of his life, he shows who he is. He's not just the son of God, but he's God himself. His character shows through. He shows that he's just not talk. He's also everything he said he was. Can I get somebody in here just to wave your hands and just to praise God for his character? Thank God not only for the forgiveness that he's given you, but thank God that he set an example for you in your life so that you can try to display that to somebody else. Thank you, Jesus, for everything you've done. Thank you, Jesus for taking the sins of the world on your back. Thank you, Jesus, for providing forgiveness for us. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me an example so I know how to deal with other folk in my own life. Thank you, Jesus, that you remembered a sinner like me so that I understand that I'm not perfect, that I have to try to meet and match your standard. Thank you, 
thank you, thank you. So how are you going to make Good Friday a Great Friday? Are you going to take that act of forgiveness and transfer it into your own life and use it as an example? Are you going to look at what Jesus did on the cross and just hear a nice sermon and hear the other seven words, other six words, and go on about your business? Or are you going to allow this to infiltrate your soul and use this as a a litmus test for how you live your life. Jesus loves us so much. The lesson from Calvary is one that will echo through all time. He gives us new meaning in the first of seven sayings that he utters from Calvary. He takes what was meant to be pain and transforms it into a prophetic moment. He utters words that only the Father can hear, but the Father takes those words and debits it out of the account of Jesus and credits it into the account of us. We sit in a spiritual surplus Because Jesus sat on the cross and endured the greatest tragedy known to man. We sit in a surplus because Jesus thought more of you and I and more of them who were crucifying than he did of himself. That deserves a hallelujah to his name. I said that deserves a hallelujah to his name. I said that deserves a hallelujah to his name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah to his name. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Good afternoon. How many of you are familiar with the game of basketball? Oh, that's great. Because just like Curtis Blow, basketball is my favorite sport. (laughs) I grew up watching the game. I always loved the game. Grew up playing the game. Any Rockets fans in here? Boo. (laughs) I'm a Warriors fan. We'll see y'all next round. But since we're talking about basketball, I wanted to let you all know that we have a basketball ministry here. It's known as the Friday Night Crossover. Every Friday in the Center for Hope from 6.30 to 9 p.m., we have open gym in the gym. We have many guys from the community just come play basketball, and we share the gospel with them. And I want you all to know that it's open to all ages. So am I going to see you tonight, Deacon Tibbs? (laughs) You too, Dad? What about you, Caitlin? (laughs) Oh, we're open to all genders as well. But every week that we play, we pray in and we pray out. 
and we're responsible for giving a two-minute devotional before we pray out. As a matter of fact, one week I was responsible for the devotion, and I shared the gospel with them, and they were just laughing and playing about it. So we asked them, if you died today, where would you be? And a lot of them were like, I don't know. Then we went as far as to asking the question, how many people do you guys know that died in the past year? You see, a lot of us grew up together. I know a lot of these guys from Yates, from Hope Academy, from playing basketball here at the church, and we all knew at least five people that died in the last year. Matter of fact, we just had a friend die a week and a half ago, and it was so scary to hear them say, we don't know where we would be if we died tonight. So I'm hoping that there's no one in the audience today, but I want everyone to think, if I died right now, would I go to heaven? And the title of today's message is, Dying Today, Where Would You Be? I'll be coming from Luke chapter 23, verse 43. In this verse, Jesus says one of his last seven words, which is, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now let's get some context on this verse. Jesus is on the cross. He's already said, Father, forgive them, for they not know what they do. He's about to be crucified. Along with them, two criminals are going to be crucified. There's one on his left and there's one on his right. And the crowd, they're insulting Jesus. They're mocking Jesus. This is an innocent man sitting on the cross getting yelled at by the crowd and insulted. And then one of the criminals decides to do what a lot of people do today, and that's follow the crowd. He starts joining in. He starts mocking Jesus. He starts insulting Jesus. He's following the crowd to death. Literally, he's on the cross about to die, and he's still following the crowd. But the other criminal, he rebukes him. He tells him, hold on, man, you tripping. Like, this is Jesus. Like, do you not know who this is? And this criminal realized some things that we should all realize. The first thing I noticed that the criminal realized is something that we should all realize, and that's that he isn't worthy. Let's look at the text. Luke 23, 41. The criminal says, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. The criminal understands that he isn't worthy. He understands he's getting what his deeds deserve. Which brings me to my first point. To know where you would be, you have to realize that you're not worthy. Just like the criminal realized this and he realized what his deeds deserve, ladies and gentlemen, we got to realize the same thing. Do you know what our deeds deserve? Romans 3.23 says, for all of sin. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. It should have been us on that cross. Because we are sinners and that's what our deeds deserve. Jesus did no wrong. We're all sick with the sin disease. Raise your hand if you've ever done something wrong. <laughs> it's all right. We're all sinners. Some people might leave church today and go sin. It's Friday. Some people might go get too happy at happy hour tonight. But we are sinners. And I'm going to be real with you. I'm the worst of all sinners. And I'm not worthy. No one in this room is. But there's hope. Let's look at the text again. Let's look at verses 42 through 43. The criminal says, Jesus, remember me 
when you come into your kingdom, Jesus answers, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. You see right here, Jesus is rewarding the faith of the criminal. The criminal understands that Jesus has the authority to remember him. But not only that, he understands who Jesus is. He understands that Jesus is the king of kings and the kingdom belongs to Jesus, which is why he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The criminal just wanted to be remembered, but Jesus went the extra mile and gave him paradise. And that brings me to my second point. Dying today, you can have paradise. Paradise is heaven. No more pain, no more suffering, no more worries, no more stress, no more crying. All love. It's a perfect world like it was meant to be. And to have this paradise, all we got to do is be like the criminal. The criminal is about to die and decides to put his faith in Jesus. The, sim the criminal realizes that he's sick with the sin disease and he takes his medication, which is Jesus. And I'm telling you, Jesus will always be the medication for anything you go through. And to get this paradise, all we got to do is realize that we're not worthy and put our faith in Jesus. Because Jesus came down here and lived 33 years of perfect life. Didn't sin not once. Then he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. And it's through faith and belief in him and his sacrifice that we have eternal life. We have paradise. And what's crazy is we shared this with the group at the crossover. We told them the gospel. And even though they said if we died tonight, we don't know where we would be, they still didn't accept Jesus that night. They still didn't accept paradise. And that's really scary. And I pray to God that there's no one here in this room. Because if you don't know where you're going to be and you want this paradise, all you got to do is realize that you're not worthy and put your faith in Jesus. Then on the day that you die, truly I tell you, you will be with him in paradise. The mob stood around about him and mocked him till he died. Two thieves were nailed beside him to share the agony. But one of them cried out to him, Oh, Lord, 
a shame to kill him there on that rugged cross oh but such a death was needed to rescue all of the lost Jesus blood was made a ransom to set the captives free. Oh, I know that I'm included and he Chuck left two minutes on the clock, so I'm going to take him. <laughs> a woman named Clara Barton was born in the year 1821. At the age of 15, she became a teacher and actually started a public school. Now, later on in life, she developed a passion for nursing, taught herself to do this, and took a job in a hospital. Now, in the year 1865, when the American Civil War broke out, the trajectory of her life drastically changed. She had a passion for helping people, and she had the desire to be with the soldiers on the front lines of the fighting in a way to help meet their needs at the most traumatic point in their life. So she was a nurse in that environment. She quickly developed the name the Angel of the battlefield, risking her life on a regular basis to tend to the needs of the soldiers. Now, after the war was over, she became acquainted with an international humanitarian organization overseas, and when she came back home, she began the work and the initiative of starting up a U.S. branch of that same organization. Today, that organization is called the American Red Cross. The American Red Cross's mission statement is to prevent and alleviate human suffering in the face of emergencies by mobilizing the power of volunteers and the generosity of donors. However, today, if you took a survey of public opinion and asked if the Red Cross still functions in the capacity that it was originally intended, and if it continues to carry out the vision of its founder, some people would tell you emphatically, 
No. Some things have changed. They're not what they used to be. This organization that was began with the intent of helping so many people has now fallen off and veered off the path. Now, my brothers and sisters, we could sit here all day and chop up how many ways they're messing it up and not doing what they should be doing. But a more productive activity would be to see how Christians ourselves have veered off the path and not been what we should be. In so many ways, we are not functioning as we were originally intended, and we have not carried out the vision of our founder, Jesus Christ. So for a few minutes, let's discuss the thought, meeting the needs of others. Now, the scripture that we're dealing with here, of course, is one of the seven last sayings, and specifically, I have John 19, 26 through 27, and it reads, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home, to his own home. Now, first point I'd like to bring out from this passage is God meets all of our needs. Let's take a look at the scenario. Jesus is on the cross suffering the worst fate that any human being has ever had to go through. He's dying a death for the sins of the world, taking care of something that none of us could ever take care of ourselves, providing a spiritual need that none of us in this room would ever have taken care of if he had not done what he did. What he did. However, he stops momentarily, looks out at Mary, his mother, who is standing by the cross, and provides for a different need. Taking care of spiritual already, but stops to do something different. Let me explain to you the concept of what a son meant to a mother in this day and time. Typically, a woman of this age, a woman in this time, would be cared for by the men that are around her. Number one, it would be her husband. Now, there's no mention of Joseph at this point in Scripture, so the assumption is he's already passed on. Jesus is her oldest son. At this point in time, Jesus knows that he's about to transition out of this life on the cross to resurrect and go back to heaven, so he's not going to be here. And what he does at that moment is provides food, shelter for Mary, who's going to be here. I'm going to be honest with you. Sometimes I think we miss the fact that God is taking care of all of our needs. Philippians 4 and 19 reads such as this. My God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. I honestly, for so many years, thought that there were certain needs that were God's area and others were not really that big a deal to him. I knew God was going to take care of me physically, going to provide a way for me to eat. But, you know, that emotional stuff I got going on, I don't know if he really care about that. I know God tends to care about my spiritual side, but, you know, this physical thing over here, does he, is that really a bigger deal? Recently, I have to tell you, God provided for a need of mine that I did not even know I was still dealing with. If you listen to me preach long enough, I tell you all my business. So <laughs> it's going to be real with you. We, we're going there right now. I didn't grow up with my father in my life. I found out who he was at the age of 20 and actually met him so, shortly after that. With that being said, I grew up with, didn't know what to call him at the time, but I still know now I have some daddy issues. Some of the ways the daddy issues in me have popped out is typically I take to older men on a regular basis. I just love for somebody to pour into me and teach me some stuff. That, I eat that up on a regular basis. Another thing that I realize is whenever I sit down and I watch a movie and there's an emotional father-son scene, I tear up every time. Not realizing there's a problem with me. 
One particular Father's Day, some of my uncles and my cousins were passing some text messages around, congratulating each other on Father's Day, you're doing a good job, and stuff like that. I chimed in, sent a message in, and immediately after that, I started crying. And I did not know why. I'm bawling as if I'm a little kid and I just got a whooping. Can't even catch my breath. And what I had to realize later on is the fact that I was dealing with never being claimed by my father. Did not know how much it still hurt. Fast forward. This last January, I go to spend some time with my father. He resides, um, he goes to the church that I grew up in, so if I want to see him, I just go there. We decided to go to church together. After that, we left and went to get something to eat at Golden Corral. Him and one of my brothers from him, he's got a lot of kids. <laughs> we all go get something to eat, and while we're sitting at Golden Corral, we're kind of going back and forth from the table, sitting down and stuff like that, and Pops said, I call him Pops, he says something specific while we're sitting at the table. Pops actually says, you know, the lady came over to see what was going on while I was sitting here, and she was asking if I had the receipt, and I told her that my son had the receipt. And he just kept talking about it, and I was like, hold on, hold on, Pop, what you say, what you say? What, the, the lady left, and you, you said what? So I told her that my son had the receipt, and I said, I, I heard you the first time, I just wanted to hear you say it again. <laughs> now, we left from the restaurant, sat down and had a conversation, and actually started talking about the fact of how I would missed having my father in my life. All the things I just told you about crying when a movie comes on and the issue I had for Father's Day. My father actually stopped and looked at me and said, why didn't you tell me sooner? My father, we're sitting there and we're getting ready to leave. And I go to pray with him. I grab his hands and we start to pray. Now, I do this with my mother on a regular basis. This is like routine for us. But while I'm praying with him and praying for him, I get to the point to where I said, and thank you, God, for my father. And I could not finish the prayer. My father grabbed me, hugged me as I laid on his shoulder and cried, and he finished the prayer. I did not even know I had that need, and God provided it. Now, with saying how God provides for our needs, point number two is we should help meet the needs of others. We should help meet the needs of others. Now, Jesus is on the cross going through it, looking out for somebody else, but he's not the only person in that scenario that's dealing with some stuff and looked out for somebody else. Jesus told John, behold your mother, and from that hour the disciple took her into his own home. Now, let us just for a moment consider John's situation. I got to imagine if John is there and we were in his, in his shoes, we'd probably say something like, uh, Jesus, I ain't got no money. I've been rolling with you on tour for the last three years, and we ain't got paid for none of them gigs. I mean, the miracles were cool and stuff like that, but didn't nobody break off no money. The one person who was in charge of the bank account was Judas, and we ain't seen him since that night in the garden. I want to help and all, but uh, I ain't got much going on. But John did not do all of that. John actually was obedient and took her into his home. Now, what we know about John is that he was called the disciple whom Jesus loved. And this is because John himself wrote this in the text. So obviously we know that he had a relationship with Christ. But this is the thing that I want to point out to you. How often do we, children of God, Christians, 
Those that say we have a relationship with Christ get too engulfed in our own stuff to help someone else. How often are we too preoccupied to reach out and be there for somebody else? How many times are we so dealing with all of our issues and all our problems, all of our emotions and all of our needs that we don't reach out or offer help to someone who actually needs it? Specifically, the question on the table is this. Are you willing to be used by God? God cares for you. Do you care for others? God has met your needs. Will you help meet the needs of someone else? God has used some human being in some shape, form, or fashion when you really needed them to be there for you in a way that caused you some great gratitude and extreme thankfulness to God himself. Question on the table is, are you open to letting him use you to be the same for someone else? What an honor it would be if God chose to use you to bless somebody else. But will you be too busy? Or will you be loving? Will you be obedient? And will you be like Jesus and help meet that need? Lord, everybody. I am not going to take very long, I promise. Can y'all hear me? Everybody hear me? I'm going to be coming from Matthew 27 and 46. And it reads, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Always, uh, find this scripture to be uh, pretty interesting because it looks like there's some debate among some of the uh, theologians as to what it means and uh, what he's trying to say. Um, it, the word for forsaken in this passage actually means to leave in like an uncomfortable situation. You're abandoned. You're deserted. Uh, you're left in a condition of lack. Uh, you're, you're helpless. You're helpless. And the, as I was reading and studying and trying to figure out uh, what he was saying in this passage, I ran across some things that I thought were kind of odd. Like uh, one guy uh, felt like he was gently intimating or trying to inform God that, you know, this was not, you know, his sin, that as if God somehow forgot that Jesus had, had never sinned before. So, I, I thought that was kind of odd. Now, he, he'd said before, uh, he being Jesus, that now my soul is troubled. And, you know, what shall I say? Uh, Father, save me from this hour? He's like, no. It was for this very reason that I came. So he, he was aware of what was going on, both he and God, with this relationship. So I thought that was kind of odd. And then I, I ran into one, and it, it, uh, it preaches really well. I've heard it before, where it talks about how um, Jesus became sin, the very embodiment of sin or the sins that he took on from us he, he somehow it kind of stuck to him and because of that stench of sin 
uh, he was feeling forsaken. He was feeling abandoned. So God, because he couldn't stand sin, kind of backed off or, 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 or backed away. Uh, but, but I think, I, I think the reason why that really doesn't resonate with me is because um, it's almost like they're forgetting that in Scripture they use this, uh, this form of language called a metonym, essentially where you take one word and it's so, it's so closely associated with something else that it has that meaning. So, for example, if I was to come in here and say, hey, they're about to take a head count, everybody knows they're not counting heads, they're counting people. Or if I was to ask, hey, will you give me a hand, you, you understand that I'm asking for some assistance. In Scripture, they would use metonyms. There, there was a, a, a time in, I believe it was in Hosea, where um, the, uh, the Lord was angry with the priests because he spoke about how the priests were getting fat on the sins of the people. Well, he wasn't literally talking about their sins that they were getting fat on. What he was referring to was back then they were kind of getting excited because the more the people sinned, the more times they had to bring offerings. And when they brought the offerings, they had more to eat. So they were getting kind of excited because they bring all these offerings in because they have a little more to eat. Uh, they were getting fat off the sins of the people. That was a metonym. He was speaking meta metonymically, if you'll allow me to use that term. So I believe that in Scripture when it talked about uh, in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21, how he who had no sin became sin for us. He was our sin offering. Amen? You, you see where I'm going? Uh, uh, when it talks about how um, in Romans 8 and 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. 1 John 2 and 2, it talks about how he is the atoning sacrifice. Uh, a lot of times you'll hear in Scripture it'll call it the propitiation. He's the, uh, the offering to satisfy an offended party. I, I believe that what Christ was on the cross was not uh, sin. He was not the embodiment of sin. He was our sin offering. And I believe that he had another reason why he was making this statement. Uh, um, when I was kind of researching and going back through, I, I learned that the uh, that 22nd Psalm was not only a messianic song, but it was a very popular song with the Jews. They would have recognized the fact that if he's quoting this psalm, it's prophetic. It, it spoke of the chosen one. So I, I believe that when Jesus was speaking these words, when he was making this statement, he was making this statement not because he felt forsaken or because God had left him, but I believe it was quite to the contrary. He was trying to let them know that he was the Messiah. He was the Christ. And in other words, God had not forsaken me. No, no, no. See, I needed to know that he was Christ. They, they needed to know that he was the chosen one because we needed to understand that it was only through him that we would have redemption. No, no, it's, it's, only, it's only through him. No, it, 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 there is no other way. He said, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. You're not going to come to the Father except by me. It's through him. No, no, no. He was trying to inform me that God would not let sin stop him from reaching me. That his love... Despite his hatred of sin, his love made him go past the sin to my need. He saw my weakness. He, see, he wouldn't allow me to stay in the weakness of sin. He, in fact, even while I was his enemy, the, the Bible says that even when we were enemies of God, Christ died. No, 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 no. He would not abandon me. He would not let sin stop him. He would not let my hatred of righteousness stop him. He would not let my ignorance stop him. He would not forsake me. What Jesus was trying to let them know is he is the Christ. In him is life. God would not forsake me. He, I, uh, 
He was trying to let them know that what he said in Deuteronomy 31 and 6 to those Israelites now would apply globally. He said, I'd never leave you nor forsake you. He, he just, he would not forsake me. He would not leave me in my sin. He, he knew where I was. He knew what my need was. And the, despite the foul stench of sin, he would not stop. He no, no, no. He would not stop there in the garden when he said, well, uh, Lord, if you can let this pass from me, nevertheless, not my will, but your will. He would not stop. No, no, no. He would not stop. He, he would not stop on the Via Dolora. He, he would not stop. He would not stop he, until they put nails in his head. He, he would not stop. He would not stop. The sin that was on my life meant enough. He would not stop. His love. That's why Paul can speak with such conviction that nothing can separate me from the love of God. I am not forsaken. I am not forsaken. We got extra time. I can take those ministers. <laughs> ministers well. Amen. <laughs> Listen, if you will, to some of these quotes. I am the wisest man alive, for I know one thing, and that is that I know nothing by Plato. There's a huge difference between thinking we know something and actually knowing something by Araldo Benavides. Not knowing anything is the sweetest life by Sophocles, a Greek poet. I know who I am. I am not perfect. I'm not the most beautiful person in the world, but I'm one of them. <laughs> Mary J. Blige. <laughs> Notice that in all these quotes, the central idea is the verb to know. Uh, how there's difficulty uh, discovering what you know, the actuality, even the arrogance sometimes, uh, the serenity and the uncertainty in just how much you really do know. However, the pursuit of knowledge is an important concept and, and one's desire to know is indeed noble and necessary. God agrees when he says in Hosea 4 that my people suffer from a lack of knowledge. Knowing the right information and the right people will guide right decisions at the right time to navigate our way, not only in this thing called life, but also in our Christian walk. Unfortunately, a lot of us struggle with this thing called ignorance. As my brother talked about earlier today, what we know, what we don't know, what when's the right time, and those type of things. But it leads to a lot of frustration, sometimes even to the point where we want to throw our hands up. But the Christian walk is a lot less difficult and frustrating when you know Christ. And I'm not talking on a surface level. I'm talking on a deep and intimate level. However, the question is, do you know him? Our scripture comes from John 19, 28 for this word. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. 
Now, Jesus has now been on the cross for roughly six hours in the process of crucifixion. He's battered and bruised and dehydrated and exhausted and in physical agony. But the Bible says after this, meaning after the fourth saying activity, that Jesus said he was thirsty. And why now? I mean, if he knew he was going to have to die for us on the cross, then why wait six hours? He could have given up the ghost in two and just got on to the resurrection. I mean, he was already very dehydrated when he got to the cross and was offered the same drink, but he refused it then, but now he accepts it. Again, why now? Well, the simple answer is, as the scriptures say, Jesus knew. He knew his mission was complete and all things were accomplished. He knew his purpose. He knew the details of his mission and he, the father who sent him. He'd done all he set out to do. And now, finally, at this time, in order to fulfill the scripture, he said, I thirst. And so I want to talk real briefly on the subject. When you know, you know. Two things I want to show you around this topic today. Number one, there's a difference between knowing cognitively and knowing intimately. Um, in English, the word know can be one of two things. It can be to know cognitively through observation, inquiry, information. You know that today is Friday because you looked at a calendar or you looked at your watch or you looked at uh, your phone or some device like that. Or it could be to have developed a relationship by spending time or being acquainted or familiar. I know my child because I'll spend a lot of time with him. I know his behavior patterns and his preference, those type of things. I know when he's lying, and I know when he's looking dead at me and ain't listening to a thing that I'm saying. Because I know him. And the word know is one of those funny things in the English language. It's a, one, it's a word where you can know, where you can and can't all at the same time. You can know about someone or something and yet not know anything about them or it at all. How many of you know Kevin Hart? Now, how many of you know Kevin Hart? <laughs> it can be hard to tell in English sometimes with the, with the way our words are used, but in the Greek, there's two separate words that it kind of helps the context a little bit better. The first word is adon, um, which is to have seen or per perceived. It generally means to possess a fullness of knowledge or the English idea of intimacy. Um, different from the word gnosko, um, which means inception or to progress in knowledge, that's that English idea of having knowledge or information. So you can know Gnosko Kevin Hart, but that doesn't mean you know Adon, him. Okay? In John 8.55, Jesus is talking, and you have not come to know Gnosko him, but I know Adon, him. And if I say that I do not know Adon, him, then I will be a liar like you, but I do know Adon, him, and keep his word. Now, of course, there's considerable overlap, but this is rather simplified. But the Greek word used in, in our scripture today is the word adon. That means Jesus had a fullness of knowledge and an intimate relationship with the mission commander. It wasn't just some pertinent information he ran across or he read about, but he knew it very intimately and deeply because of a time spent in relationship with the Father. Now, that brings us to our second point. It's not enough to know you need Christ but you need to know Christ. Most of us know Christ is the Son of God. He gave up his place on the throne. He wrapped himself in flesh. He died on the cross for us. That's the Easter story. Many of us know that in order to be saved, we have to accept 
Jesus Christ into our lives as Lord and Savior. But just because you've accepted Jesus Christ into your life, it doesn't mean that you know him. My father never wanted to be a part of my life. Now, I knew where he was, but he never wanted to be involved in my life at all. He knows I live in Texas. He thought it was Dallas. I can guarantee you he didn't even know my birthday. But I will always have a relationship with him because he's my father. And he'll never be able to deny it because the older I get, the more I look just like him. Okay? So you also have a relationship with God when he saves you. But that doesn't mean you know him. Christ wants us to have more than saving us. He wants to have more than just saving us in our relationship with him. John 14, 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anybody loves me, he will keep my word and the father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. God is a person. And just like you'd want to have an intimate relationship with your earthly father, God wants the same from you. What is it that you know about your earthly spouse or your good friend that signifies deep intimacy? You know, what do you know about the living God? What do you know about his background, his history? What about, do you know about his attributes? Do you know about his expectations? What he loves, what he hates, what his desires, what his commandments are, what pleases him, what grieves him? Do you spend time with him? Do you talk to him? Does he talk to you? Or do you know all the rockets and all their shooting percentages more than you know your own God? Jesus knew that all things were accomplished because he knew the Father intimately. So the question still stands, do you know him? Or did you just discover how much you don't know about him? But that's good news on this Good Friday because there's still time to get to know Christ. Because it can be frustrating at times to know that you don't know. But ah, when you know that you know. You know that feeling you get when something just works? You know, when you've been working hard at something and it just finally clicks, you hit that ball 99 times, it slices off to the left side. But when you make contact that 100 times and you just know. Or you finally win that argument with your spouse. That's a feeling that inspires confidence. It motivates us to just keep going, to keep trying. It produces peace in us. You know, it helps reduce anxiety. It helps cut down on impulsiveness. You know, but you don't have to wait for that feeling. Because you can have that feeling all the time when you know you know him. There's so much on this journey about what we don't know. I mean, why did Jesus say he was thirsty? Some say, well, he was thirsting for souls. Some say, well, he was thirsting for God's fellowship and presence. Some say Jesus was thirsty. Some say, I don't know. But you don't have to worry about what you don't know when you know him. And so when you don't know how you're going to make it from day to day, he's the good shepherd. When you don't know who to talk to, he's a wonderful counselor. When you feel lost and you don't know your way, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And when you don't know what you want to do, he knows the plans he has for you. Because there's nothing greater, there's no greater confidence that you'll have when you know that you know him. I've 
trying to conquer my soul. I heard the voice of my Savior. He bid me still fight on. He promised never to leave me, never to leave On Calvary's mountain for me, they pierced his side. For me, he opened that fountain, the crimson cleansing tide. For me, he's waiting in glory. finish God's work because of our physical condition sometimes we get weak we can't lift what we used to lift I can't walk as far as I used to could walk but Jesus held on to the point on the cross where he made this statement in John 19.30. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the spirit. That is enough. He's finished. You know, as I was looking at this, I made a statement one time that I was retiring 
uh, even from speaking about God in public in this setting. But I found out I hadn't finished what God had in store for me. And I find myself constantly walking around telling someone about the goodness of Jesus. And it brings to mind what Jesus was going through. Uh, it seems that he finished at an early, earthly age. But he's still working for his father. The thought that I want you to have today is father's will. I think Jesus thought of this constantly. Because in John, the fourth chapter, and the 34th verse, Jesus was at the well. We all know about the story of the woman at the well, where Jesus was talking to this woman in whom he had no relationship. He shouldn't have even been talking to her according to their law because she was a Sumerian. But Jesus talked anyway. But when the disciples came back, it was astounding that they asked when he said that uh, his meat, in that 34 verse, he says, his meat was to do the will of him that sent him and to finish his work. Meaning that he had some more to do. And I want to relate this to all of us. It is not what we want. It's what he wants in our life that counts. Uh, he said that he had to finish his work. You know, and I, I look at that and I said, what did he have to finish? You know, he, he had broke down the barriers of, of uh, prejudice and separation by accepting this woman at the well, this Sumerian. And I was thinking, but before he got to his found statement that it's finished, uh, they gave him some sour wine. You know, and he had refused earlier a drink. But at this point, you know, that sour wine was used as a sedative, or, you know, to ease the pain. And that pain was unbearable to Jesus at this point. He just was giving it all up because he had did his father's will. And that's uh, confusing to me because I see a whole lot of things that had occurred that Jesus had performed miracles 
starting with the wine at the wedding. He healed the sick. You know, he raised the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He made the lame walk. Was this not enough? You know, I can see you and I because I didn't believe. Uh, you know, I'm one of those old-time preachers that I tell you about hell, but I know that I didn't believe. But now I believe and I know <laughs> that if I go today, <laughs> I know where I'm going. You see, uh, Jesus had did it all. He had set an example for you and I. You see, a lot of us don't see what Jesus has for us because we are so anxious to do more in this world that satisfied us. You know, you don't want to uh, uh, be called a wimp a one that, you know, is weak because you want to do what you want to do and not the will of the Father. We are so stressed out in, in this day and time with the things of the world and we are concerned about things that we shouldn't even be concerned about if we attempt to do our Father's will. Let me tell you, I can look at our president. Some of us get all upset and bent out of shape. We are forgetting one thing. Jesus, God, our Father, is in control. You know, we're worried about something that it doesn't matter. Because in the end, we have to make an account to Jesus. And when we realize that, our president is it just giving us a chance to wake up and depend on Jesus more each and every day. We have come a long way as people through slavery and through mistreatment and all of these other bad things that happen. But until you meet Jesus for yourself and you know what he did in your life, <laughs> I know what he did for me. <laughs> I was destined for hell. But Jesus died on that cross, and when he said that he had finished, is finished, he picked me up on solid ground, gave me a new outlook on life, knowing that I am not going to hell now, that I'm going to glory. I'm going to sit around that great throne and praise him throughout endless ages.
the last word, or is it? Our text comes from Luke 27, verse 46, and it says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. See, when you read the account of Jesus' death, if you're not careful, you miss a lot. Because if you casually look at it, he cried out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. All you see is the end of a messy death. Right? You see a hapless victim on a cross succumbing to his suffering. But if you look at those words, these last seven sayings, you'll see something incredible unfold. Because when you start looking at what was happening before and after Jesus passed away on the cross, you realize there's a whole lot more going on. When we look at things in, in, in context, Dr. Luke in verses 44 and 45 wrote that, it was, that, that Jesus went to the cross about the sixth hour and now it had been the ninth hour and the sun's light had failed for three hours. He also wrote that the curtain in the temple had been torn in two. Now Matthew gives us a little more detailed account. In, verse 27, in chapter 27, verses 50 and 51 of, of Matthew's gospel, it says, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. See, all of this is going on. The sun's light had failed. On the cross, Jesus was accepting the wrath of God. He was the sacrificial offering. Right? See, a lot of people want to say that God rejected Jesus on the cross. Oh, pray no, he didn't. Because he was a fragrant aroma being offered for your sins and my sins. But while all of this is pouring out, God's justice had to be served. And wrath had to be poured forth. Because the writer said, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. So Jesus had to bleed and die, and it was messy. But the rocks, the earth, the sun, creation itself, watched the death of the one who created them and who by him and through him and in him all things were held together. He was accepting the wrath of God, and they couldn't stand it. When Jesus walked into, the, into Jerusalem earlier that week, the Pharisees told him, tell your followers to be quiet. Jesus said, if they stop talking, the rocks will cry out. And now they are crying out, but in grief and horror. John 19.30 says, Jesus said to Talisti, it's done. There's no need to suffer anymore. But he's going to tell us a little bit about who he is. See, in John, 9, in John 10, 
verses 14 through 17, what did Jesus say? He said, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. Right? I know the Father, and the Father knows me, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I could take it back up again. The thing that makes crucifixion horrible is you can't breathe. You don't die from the wounds. You don't die from the loss of blood. You die from suffocation. And it takes time. It's slow. And it's painful. And they nail your feet like that because while your arms are stretched out, your arms get tired, but they put the pressure. The muscles in your ribs begin to fail, and you can't breathe. And the only way to try and get some air is to step up. But your breath is going, and you're dying. So how can you cry out in a loud voice? Jesus is telling us who he is. Jesus is saying that I have authority. Jesus is saying, no one takes my life from me. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life so that I can pick it back up again. The Roman centurion knew that something was up. If the earthquake wasn't enough, oh, and by the way, the sun, it, 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 it hid, right? You ever think about the Passover? You learn a little bit. We study the Bible history, right? Go read your Old Testament. Passover is celebrated during a full moon. It is physically impossible for an eclipse to occur during a full moon. Something supernatural is at work. See, the Roman centurion knew what was happening. It's like, this man should not be able to cry out in a loud voice. He should barely be breathing. And then he gives up his spirit. Just like the new Adam had to breathe in the breath of life so that he could live, Jesus breathed it out because he was the new Adam. You see, he is the good shepherd who lays down his life. The sheep are not just from the fold of the He said, what did he say? He said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. This is not a moment of sadness. The centurion saw it, put two and two together. And Matthew records it. In Luke, he says, in Luke 20, 27, 47, now when the centurion saw what happened, he praised God saying, surely this man was innocent. But Matthew, Matthew writes, the centurion who was there with him, kept him watching over Jesus, saw the earthquake, saw what took place, and they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. Right? God revealed himself through nature, through what Jesus said, and he leaves no room for no excuse for anyone to reject the work that he has done on the cross. God said, you are all sinners by right. This is what you deserve. But I love you enough that I sent my son. That I sent my son to die in your place, to suffer in your place. I don't ask that you earn fellowship with God. I don't ask that you earn justification because I've already justified you. The good news isn't that you can accept Jesus into your life. It's that he's already accepted you into his. These final words are not about defeat. Not at all. 
Well, Jesus said, I give up my spirit and I commend my spirit into your hands. He was dropping the mic. He might as well have said, God wins. God wins. Right? Because he suffered on our behalf. His mission was done. Right? In fact, this is the time of redemption. This is the moment of redemption. Right? This is the moment of new creation. The old things have passed away. The rocks have shaken the earth. Creation is rending itself. Right? Because, yes, Jesus is dying on the cross. The creator is suffering the wrath. But wait a minute. What does Revelation 20 talk about? A new creation. The earth is tearing itself apart because it knows it's getting ready to be made new. These final words of Jesus are the end of the old life. It's the beginning of the new life. This is where you and I and all who trust in Christ have become a new creation is at the foot of the cross. You struggling with a hurt habit or hang up, you need new life. You got to find it at the cross. You not fulfilled with your old life, find a new life, but you find it at the cross. You want to be the best you? You don't need some namby-pamby prosperity gospel. You need to find a new life at the cross. The cross is not the place of tragedy. It is not a place of messiness. It's where new life begins. Jesus didn't die a hapless victim. But if that's all you'll see, you'll go home in sorrow beating your breasts like those who followed him in in Luke 27, 47. But that's okay. Jesus got a plan for you too. Because just like winter, Sunday is coming. on everyone who can, everyone who will. Stand on your feet wherever you are. I think a great, appropriate hymn of invitation will be at the cross where I first saw the light. If you're here today and you've never asked Jesus Christ into your life, we certainly want this Good Friday to be a great Friday for you. And you can make it great by giving your life to the Lord. If you're watching via streaming, thank you for being with us. We would instruct you to go to our website, goodhope.org. Right there in the streaming portion of our website, and you can find the information there on how to give your life to the Lord, how to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. As we sing, if you're here and present, we invite you to come. There are those who are here who are up front and others all around who would love to show you privately how to ask the Lord into your life. You don't have to leave here lost. You can give your life to the Lord and put your spirit in the hands of God. Last and 
Let's thank God for these seven preachers today who shared. I'm really grateful and thankful uh, for their thoughtfulness. And, um, you know, a lot of times uh, when you tell somebody you're going to preach a uh, shorter sermon, they don't always put the time in to the preparation, not realizing that the shorter it is, the harder it is to preach a meaningful and impactful message. Amen. Uh, messages don't have to be eternal to be impactful. Amen. And uh, so I want to thank them for taking that, that time seriously. Charles Cohen Jr., come up here, man. I got to... So, man, Chuck has, has grown up in this church, and we have watched him grow and develop. And, uh, you know, I, I got to tell you all something. He's been doing devotional messages and, and sharing his faith on campus um, with the children, upwards, basketball, football, um, soccer. He does it all. And uh, this year he's actually going to be, uh, working at Stony Creek Camp as a camp counselor this year. And, and I got to tell you, when they gave me his name, I said, well, when, when did Chuck preach his first sermon? Like, you know, in our tradition, you know, you got to preach your first sermon, you know, and we license you and all that stuff. And they said, well, he's been, he been sharing his faith. He's been preaching all over the place. I'm like, well, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. That, that's, you know, it's illegal to drive without a license. You know what I mean? You know, when they pull you over and ask you for your license, they don't ask, can you drive? Because the license gives you authority. You know what I mean? So, so today, I, I didn't tell him and I didn't tell his mom and dad, but today we want to license Chuck Cohen, preach the gospel. 
So, uh, uh, the license reads, this is the certified Charles Cohen Jr. who has given evidence that God has called him into the gospel ministry, was licensed to preach the gospel as he may have opportunity and to exercise his gifts in the work of the ministry, presented this 19th day of April in the year of our Lord, 2019, Good Hope Missionary Baptist Church, D.Z. Cofield, Senior Pastor. Come on, somebody get a picture of this for us. Come on up close so y'all can get it. Where you, where you at? Turn, yeah, come on. Man. So no, no, more, no more preaching without a license, all right? Mom and Dad, come on up here. Mom and Dad, somebody get a picture of Mom and Dad up here. Praise God. Praise God. Man, what a great job. I tell you what, shoot, put Chuck up on Sunday morning. He just said, that was a great, great message. All, all of our preachers did a tremendous job today. Yeah. All right, let's prepare to worship the Lord in giving good hope. It's time for the offering. Amen. Amen. I want to thank family and friends for coming and sharing with us on today. Uh, we want to be a blessing to these preachers uh, as well as the kingdom work. Um, if you're going to give, uh, ask you and you make a check, make it out to Good Hope. You can also give online using the GiveLify app as well as PushPay. Um, you can go to goodhope.org. Uh, we certainly want to encourage them along the way. Maybe help them buy. You know, when I was when I first started preaching, we used to talk about buying a book. You know, I guess now we can help them buy some software or something. You know, Amen. All right, give as the Lord has blessed you. Give as the Lord leads you. I just wanna praise you forever and ever and ever. Blessings and glory and honor, they all belong to you. Thank you, Jesus, for blessing me. And ever, and ever. 
Just a couple of announcements. Uh, tomorrow at 12 noon, tomorrow, we will have our Easter egg hunt for our children. So if you have uh, children, um, I, I was going to give an age limit. Uh, some of y'all grown children, buy your own candy, all right? <laughs> no, if you have children, no, um, I think up to 12, is that right? Children, right? Yeah, no teenagers. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, they are invited to come out, and uh, this is a, a free community event. And so we're thankful for those of you who have made donations, and uh, we uh, look forward to that day on tomorrow. And then Sunday, we will have our Easter resurrection services, 8, 10, and 12. We'll have three services, 8, 10, and 12. And I want to encourage you, it's not too late, to invite a family member or friend. Um, and if you know they don't want to go to church, just invite somebody you know needs to come to church. You know what I mean? Because this is the most attended Sunday for church of saints and sinners throughout the year. Everybody's going to church. Even folk who are atheists go to church on Easter, you know. I'm telling you, everybody go to church on Easter. They don't even know why they're going. They're just going. They, they out shopping right now, buying suits and ties and everything. So um, we certainly want to invite as many of our family members and friends to come and share with us on Easter. And uh, we're looking forward to God blessing our time on, on next week. And let me also uh, announce uh, next week next week i'm gonna take pastoral prerogative so next week we will be officially on blackout for some of you that may bother you white out that means we're gonna take a break next week so nobody do anything after resurrection sunday no rehearsal, no practice, no folk. Now, if you didn't do anything this last week, then you need to go on and do what you're going to do. No, no, but I'm talking about the folk who've been out here and whatnot. You know, I just want you to take a little break. You know, you need to just take care of some personal business, things like that. Make sure you take care of yourself um, because we don't want faith to be the detriment of our walk with God. Amen. Amen. Um, so uh, we'll do that next week. All right. Amen. If all hearts and minds are clear, anything else we got? We're good. All right. Uh, again, let me just remind you, um, had a chance to meet with and, and finalize everything for the uh, George Thomas homegoing. And that uh, wake will be on Wednesday night, 6 to 9. 6 to 9. We'll have a wake here at the church. And then his homegoing service will be Thursday. Body will be available to be viewed from 9 to 11. Homegoing service will be at 11 o'clock. And then there are several events that will be coming up after that. Uh, George had several loves. One is love for God, uh, love tennis, love 
music and, and loved KTSU, where he served as the general manager for 18 years. And so uh, several events will be going on, including a tennis tournament, a round-robin tournament that's going to be played at the Home of Ford Tennis Center at McGregor Park on Saturday at 10 o'clock. And then Monday the 29th, make sure you put this down, Monday the 29th, we're going to be doing a jazz concert here in support of the George Thomas Memorial Scholarship Fund. Uh, tickets will be $25. All the proceeds are going to the scholarship fund to support a young person who is pursuing experiences or career in tennis, jazz, and radio broadcasting and journalism. All right? So we're going to honor George in that way. And uh, there were some who were concerned. It, you had to be in the meeting. There were some, you know, they kept on, well, you know, you want to have it at the church? You know, yeah, we have it at church, you know. No such thing as a Christian C chord, you know. You know, a C is a C, you know, right? Piano, sanctified piano, unsanctified piano, right, you know. Amen. So, you know, no, we're we going to have it at the church. And, and he kept on talking, and the Spirit said, they're not concerned about having jazz at the church. They're concerned about some other things that they normally do with their jazz music. I said, well, I know communion won't do some of y'all good. So, <clears throat> so we're going to do uh, the concert here at 7. Actually, we have some youth coming, some youth jazz ensembles that are coming. Uh, we got some, some kids who are now young adults, jazz uh, that George invested in, uh, gave instrument to and, and the like. So they're going to be here on Monday night, and then they're going to have the after jazz concert at 4212, Cafe 4212. For those who want to add some extra to their jazz listening. Amen. I'm not mad at you. Amen. Amen. All things should be done decently and in order. Amen. So we're going to have the concert here, and then they're going to do the after concert over there. You should have seen them when I said that. They said, oh, okay, all right, Pastor. We're good now. We're all right. <laughs> well, you heathens, i tell you what. No, I, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I didn't say that. All right, everybody good? Listen, enjoy the rest of your day, man. I know there's some stuff going on, crawfish boils and all kinds of stuff. Boy, it's Friday, folks, fried fish and everything. So just enjoy the rest of the day. And remember that even in this resurrection season, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that can raise us from our dead situations to experience the newness in life not just in salvation, but in our everyday living. So if you don't have the power within yourself, remember resurrection power is still available for you right now. Come on, let's stand on our feet and let's get ready to go down from this place. Musicians, ushers, thank you all so much. Sound, master control, thank you so much. Brother Travis Rucker got the Schedule printed. Pastor Sloan, thank all of you, man, for making this not just a wonderful day, but a wonderful week. All right? Amen. Let's look to the Lord. Father, bless us now. 
as we leave this place, but never to leave your presence. May your spirit rest, rule, and abide with us now, henceforth, and forevermore. Bless us in our going out and our coming in. Bless us in our rising and when we slumber. And allow us to make it back to our respective places of rest and find all things well. We give you glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let all of God's people say amen. Show at least three people some love before you leave. Don't count the folk you rode with, all right? God bless. All, all, of, all, of, the, all of the preachers who are present, all of the preachers who are present, if you'll come, please, so they can take a picture with all of the preachers who are present. Amen. Come on, Chuck, bring your, bring your license with you so we can get a picture with, with the newest son of hope. Hey.